Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. This is part two of a conversation that I had with Eckhart Tolle at Stanford University as part of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education Conversation on Compassion series. I hope you enjoy. We talk about, if you will, the loss of ego in the spiritual context. We hear quantum physicists talk about quantum consciousness. We hear people talk about oneness. Is once you separate out the thought, and there just is the is, is that the oneness we're talking about, or what are your thoughts? The... We're using thought to point to something that's beyond thought. The sense of separateness or separation arises through the continuous labeling of all your life experiences, which is particularly harmful in the case of other human beings. When you relate to other human beings, the moment you meet somebody, you, again, through this this stream of thinking that is involuntary and arises through your conditioning, will immediately interpret the other person with thoughts. They're called judgments, good or bad, more, usually more negative than positive in most people's cases. <laughs> and that creates a sense of separation. Even when you walk in the forest or landscape and you immediately interpret everything, the reality that you inhabit becomes a conceptual reality, so you lose touch. It's as if a screen were suddenly rising between yourself and the aliveness around you in other human beings, in nature. So you cannot sense the inherent aliveness in nature anymore, and you cannot sense the inherent aliveness in another human being anymore, because you reduce everything to mental concepts. So when you are totally, continuously immersed in this stream of thinking, you begin to inhabit a conceptual reality which separates you from the actual aliveness that's all around you. And that's so the source of separation, sense of separation, is involuntary, continuous labeling of everything, and including yourself. You do it to yourself. You label yourself in certain ways. People have opinions about who they are, and they vary. Some people are predominantly negative, which is very unpleasant to live with a very self-critical mind that that always says, well, why did you do that? You should have done better, and so on. Maybe it's your mother talking still, but it's thought. <laughs> you have that. It's very, it's a dreadful thing to have that in your head. So then you can become free of that by realizing these are the thoughts and here's the, the, the actual situation. Separation then arises through that and you can when you go into nature, really, we can talk about it in terms of knowing. You can know, I like walking in nature, in the forest, and I can, I can do that in two ways. I can walk through the forest and look at the trees and birds and the ferns and all the wonderful things and comment on it and say, this is, it's that, it's called that, or look at this wonderful bird, I wonder what it's called, or, and so on, and all kinds of commentary. That's one way of knowing the forest, but I can also walk through the forest and simply be absolutely present and observe 
without labeling it. In that sense, from a conceptual point of view, I don't know anything anymore, but there is a deeper knowing there where I can suddenly sense something that the conceptual mind can never feel, and that is the forest is alive, there is an energy field there, there is even a sacredness there, and everything is intensely alive, and I become still, and there is a sense of merging with that which you are observing with your sense perceptions. And so the sense of separation goes away, and, and there is a sense of oneness with that which you are perceiving. There's no longer the me and the other, because that's through conceptualization. And, when, and that's beautiful when you can walk in a forest like that. The experience of being in the forest is greatly enhanced. And if you can relate with another, to another human being like that, then there is a true relating. And here we come to compassion. I would say that true compassion with another human being, which is closely related to the ability to empathize, to feel the beingness of the other, to sense your way into the other, is also closely related to what we could call goodwill towards another being, benevolence. Confucius already pointed to benevolence as one of the most important things. He said, you're not even fully human if the faculty of benevolence, which is goodwill, they're really all the facets of the same faculty, has not arisen in you. Confucius said, you're not even fully human yet. So that compassion benevolence, the goodwill, the ability to empathize, to ultimately recognize the other as not absolutely other, all arises when the habitual and unconscious and compulsive labeling of others no longer operates. And that's where compassion can arise. Before we came out, we were actually talking about uh, <coughs> barriers to being compassionate or connecting to others. And we were actually uh, talking about how wonderful it is to have an animal, like a dog, because they never judge you, right? And that's really what we all want. Yes. Because I think that's one of our fears, is that when we intersect with another, we're going to be judged. And you have this animal that unhesitantly embraces you. And in, in fact, we were also talking about enlightened people or people who it's wonderful to be around. Not that they're dogs, but they're. Uh, <laughs> but what they do is, you, you, when you're with these people, you have this incredible sense they did just accept you for who you are, with no judgment, no demands. You're just there at that moment, and I think that's yes, yes. The dog, of course, is a wonderful example. People. We also talked about the GPS. GP the GPS doesn't judge you either, does it? Never raises its voice. This is right. The, the GPS uh, never tells you why do you not listen to me? Why? <laughs> How many times have I told you to turn this way? <laughs> So we're talking about writing a book, uh, Dogs and GPS. <laughs> but, and the dog, of course, uh, you, I don't know if you've heard the prayer, please, God, make me into the person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, the dog, of course, the secret is the dog doesn't think. It just 
experiences you. It has no labels towards you. It doesn't have the conceptual reality. It has the direct reality. So there's this enormous joy of life in the dog as expressed in the tale, the wagging tail, which is, and, and this is why many human beings love relating to animals because they feel this unconditional acceptance. And you look into the eyes of a dog and there's, you can sense the dog's beingness unobstructed by mental stuff, that, that pure beingness. And by, by looking into the eyes of the dog and feeling the dog's beingness, actually you can sense your own beingness and you feel, oh, it feels so good to look into the dog's eyes. And so the dog is pre-thought, so it hasn't lost him or herself. I don't like to call the dog it. Like the dog hasn't lost him or herself in the, the mental realm yet. And when we go beyond that, like you mentioned, people who don't have this egoic self anymore, they have a lot in common with the dog, but they have risen above thinking, and the dog is still below thinking. But but both are more deeply connected with that that beingness than we are. We humans, in our present, as I, the way I see it, in evolutionary terms, we are halfway between the animal and something greater than the human. <laughs> and that's one of the things actually we're talking about is one of the challenges for us which creates this uh, self-talk is the fact that we have a perception of a past with regret and a fear of uncertainty by understanding a future. And so we have evolved from the animal, if you will, who's right there at the absolute moment and who experiences the joy and the connection and this incredible sense of, of happiness just for being right there, yet we have evolved to such an incredible state where we're either back there or looking over there, but we're not here. And I think that's yes. the challenge. Yes, that's an enormous restriction that we actually, most humans seem to live as if past and future were much more important than the present moment. And Usually it's the case when you are up to a certain age, future is much more important. And when there's not that much future left anymore, the past <laughs> becomes much more important. You can all see that when you're older, your old grandfathers or parents, whatever, they start to talk more and more about the older they get, the more they talk about the past. Whereas you, most of you are young, probably tend to think more in terms of the next moment, the next and the next. It's not realizing that we actually to a large extent, ignore, do not truly value, don't fully acknowledge, are not fully aligned with internally this moment, which is, and it's a, is it a revolutionary statement to say, there's only ever the present moment, that's all you ever have, not the future and not the past, you can never experience anything in the future, in that sense the future will never come, because when it comes, it's the present. There's only ever this moment. And if habitually you have an antagonistic relationship with the present moment, as many people have, and that's due to this continuous stream of thinking, takes you out of the present moment, believing I need to get there because the fulfillment of my life is there, but never here. If that becomes a pattern, even if you achieve what you want, if the pattern is deeply lodged in your mind that I'm going to be fulfilled in the next moment or the one after that, 
that will probably remain even when you achieve certain things. For a moment you'll be happy and fulfilled. And then the old pattern will re-emerge and you'll find unhappiness again. That happened to me shortly before, actually shortly before the shift in conscience happened to me. I was in London. My finals came. I studied very hard. I was already a mature student because I left school at 14 and so and then I got a job in my late teens and early 20s. And then I got the qualifications to get university in evening courses. And then I got, was very fearful that I wasn't, wouldn't do well. And I had to prove to the world and myself that I could do it. And so I worked very hard and, but was very unhappy while I was doing it most of the time. And, I got the best in England, it's called a first class honors degree, which not many people get, and so of course elated. Well, I got, wow, my life is now, this is the absolute climax of my life. And that lasted for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the, suddenly one night I woke up again in a state of fear. What's going to happen to me now? What are you now? It's the old pattern reasserted itself, and that was shortly before the shift happened. I became even more unhappy after that. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I think one of the things that happen is you, when you grow up and are acculturated, if you, I think that's a word, acculturated, to certain patterns of thinking, certain self-criticisms, it's like an abused child, though, because that's in the environment. And there's this natural tendency, I think, and maybe you can comment on this, where when you're scared or fearful, you fall back on that because that's allowed you, I think, to survive to that point. It creates this construct that you think protects you from harm when, in fact, it is the thing that is harming you. Yes, yes. So talking about past and future and excessive emphasis on past and future in your life, yes, of course you need to have... It, there's nothing wrong with having a certain intention of what you want to achieve, take steps towards it. It's, it's part of living here in this dimension. You can't just say, I'm never going to plan anything anymore. Just take life as it comes. Well, some people try to do that, but they're not that happy either after a while. <laughs> uh, so then your life will get very diffused. And so to have an intention, to have, to make a plan, perfectly fine. What, either a short-term plan, like I'm going to meet you tomorrow at four o'clock. How would you ever meet anybody if we didn't have time? And future in a practical level, of course it's needed. The question is whether future takes over your mind, being able to use it for practical purposes is, of course, great. But I call that clock time is fine, but psychological time is when the future takes over your mind and your entire thought patterns are geared only towards future and you treat the present moment as either just a means to an end because it enables you to get to the next one you're always reaching out, so to speak, internally to the next, yet never quite here, always looking for some fulfillment there, so you can never embrace the fullness of now, or you make the now into even an enemy. Some people are always unhappy. You, perhaps we all know some, one or two people like that. Three. <laughs> we all, who are, wherever they are, they are they're complaining, it's never quite right. Wherever they are or whoever they are with, after a little while, they're very uncomfortable again. They should be somewhere else. 
you know the bumper sticker that you see in some cars in the various versions of it says, I'd rather be golfing. And then another one says, I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be this, I'd rather be there. When I visited the, the spiritual teacher, Ram Das, who lives in Hawaii, he has a bumper sticker on Oh, but Ram Das was the person who, in the 70s, wrote the book, Be Here Now. That, and anyway, he has a bumper sticker on his car that says, I'd rather be here now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and, and then you realize you can actually, you can still pursue whatever an intention, where you want to get to, a plan, I call that, it's a bit like a journey. Your life is a, is a journey. You're going, you know you want to go from here to there. Whether you're going to get there, we don't know. Maybe on the way you'll branch out to somewhere else. But at least you have a certain direction. It's good to have some direction in your life. But while you are traveling, if the, the, your destination takes up most of your attention and you're continuously focusing on there, you miss all the journey, really. You can't enjoy the journey anymore. And most of your life is the journey. The arriving is relatively rare. The wedding, ah, the <laughs> and a few more graduation, ah. But so, so those moments are not the fine few between. So the rest is the journey. And if you can't enjoy the journey, which means the step you're taking at this moment is really the most important thing. Yes, of course, you know you're going that way, but this step is still to be enjoyed because that's ultimately your whole life consists of the step you're taking at this moment. There is never anything else. Maybe I could ask you a question because you mentioned Ram Das. <clears throat> Many of you may know that he had a devastating stroke that impaired his speech. And what's interesting is here's an individual who's, again, spent an immense amount of time on introspection, but he said until he had the stroke, he never really saw clearly, I think, or something along those lines, because it caused him to gain insights into what not only did he lose, but also some of the fact that he wasn't there, and now he's very aware of being present. And this gets back to a, a, an earlier conversation which is we see people who spend an immense amount of time on introspection, yet this issue of ego still is a very heavy burden they have, and maybe... Well, there's the... Even people who are, have a spiritual practice, but perhaps they meditate twice a day and so on for years, they still very often seems to be an inability to integrate that into their everyday lives. So you can become a very good meditator, and I've met quite a few, they're, they're fantastic, they can sit still for much longer than I can, and they, they, they go, they can sit quite perfectly still for one or two hours in a lotus position, which I wouldn't be able to do. The example that sometimes given, there's the man doing his meditation on on metta, metta meditation is a meditation on loving kindness, which is you spreading your, says, may everybody here in this house be well and happy, may I be well and happy, may everybody in this city be well and happy. So the, you spread out the, the desire for everybody to be well and happy. This is the loving kindness meditation. It's quite a lovely meditation. And there's the man doing his metta loving kindness meditation and the door opens and his seven-year-old daughter comes in and says, daddy, daddy. Can't you leave me alone? Can't you see I'm doing my loving kindness meditation? 
<laughs> a typical example of not having integrated your spiritual practice into everyday life. And this is why I, I recommend uh, mini meditations during the day, just a few seconds at a time, when you actually become present. So, for example, I recommend certain activities that you do habitually. Why not, instead of using those activities as a means to an end, give them your fullest attention so that they become an end in themselves. For example, washing your hands. You can actually be amazed when you give it your full attention how pleasant it is to wash your hands. There's the feel of the water, very pleasant. There's perhaps the scent of the soap. There's the feeling of touch. And you may also wet your face. I do that always when I wash my hands. The cool water on your face after you've washed your hands and then you dry your hands, it is a very pleasant and enjoyable experience. Or walking up the stairs, if you, there's a stairs somewhere in where you work or study or at home, every time you walk up the stairs, why not, instead of making it a means to an end, because you want to get to the top of the stairs, so just be aware of every step and, and just enjoy the movement. Of the, it's very, very pleasant. Waiting, I recommend that whenever you're waiting for something, instead of waiting, use that opportunity to, and use it as a mini meditation. So instead of waiting basically means you want the next moment, but not this one. This is why you're waiting. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be waiting. You would just be there. <laughs> so when you're waiting for the elevator, if when you're waiting, it's there's something pushing you inside you that wants to get ahead to the next moment, but it can't get there because the elevator isn't here. And so when you push for the elevator, and instead of waiting, why not just be there, totally present, without straining away from the now internally, wanting uh, want to get to the elevator which isn't here. Just be, use that moment and be, just become fully, take, maybe take a few breaths, give attention to your breath. It's a wonderful way of taking attention away from thinking when you don't want it and don't need it. The Buddha already recommended breath meditation, which simply means to observe or to feel yourself breathing. And you will notice you cannot think and feel yourself breathing. It's either one or the other. <laughs> so when you're standing in front of the elevator, take your attention away from the mind, which means it moves into the present moment, Take a few conscious breaths and enjoy this moment of not waiting. Or the supermarket checkout counter, which is a source of frustration for many people. Well, that's where I read the inquired. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that could be a, an escape into some kind of, it's mostly lies in there, so that's... <laughs> So these are mini meditations. I think they are very helpful. Probably I would prefer, I believe, these are more effective to incorporate many such mini meditations into your everyday life than to have separate, totally separate compartments in your life. One is your spiritual practice and the rest, and then there's the rest of your life. I'm not saying the mini meditation means you cannot also have a spiritual practice. But if you want to choose either one or the other, I would prefer the mini meditations because they become part of your everyday life. So you're less likely to have two compartments in your life. Speaking of, you, you were talking about compassion, metapractice. Um, One of the challenges for many people 
And one of the confounds in the neuroscience research is this issue of in-group versus out-group. And we understand from an evolutionary level why this has occurred, but I think to survive as a species, we have to figure out ways to expand this in-group, and maybe you can comment on what your thoughts are on how we do that. Uh, what do you mean by in-group? The people who you have your group that you automatically feel close to or uh, love yes. versus people you've never met uh, or, in fact, yes, yes. maybe have no opinion about okay. or, in fact, maybe even dislike. Yes. How do you spread compassion, care, yes. love <clears throat> to embrace them? Right. Yes. And then also, especially people you may not like or have differences of opinion with, how do you embrace that? Because your response oftentimes is an emotional response. Yes, yes, that's a very important point. One sense of self, in our Western world, most people have a predominantly a personal sense of self derived from their life experiences and all forms of conditioning. Prior to a personal sense of self, humans apparently had a tribal sense of self. So the, the once their sense of identity was not so much based on me, it was mainly based on us. So that began with the, the tribe. It's our tribe. And when the most the dreadful thing one could do to a person, and still perhaps is the case in some older societies, for somebody to to be expelled from the tribe would be like a death sentence. Not just physically, but even psychologically, the person would virtually die. So tribal consciousness is still very much alive in humans. And this is uh, in some societies and in the 20th century, in certain time periods in the 20th century, was very strongly, very pronounced as nationalism which led to the huge world wars and the madness of the 20th century. So that was really a regression to the, the tribal consciousness, which if, we, if you think that the egoic consciousness that's totally identified with the sense of the me, the conceptual me in the head, if you think that's mad, the thing that's more mad is the, the collective conscious, the collective me. So it is still the case that many people can have compassion and empathy with those who belong to their group, tribal group. And some people can only have compassion and empathy with the members of their family or extended family. They just cannot go beyond that. Anybody who is beyond the family is the stranger. <laughs> so you cannot recognize another as a true human being. And you still have within countries, you have certain regions that are totally have this tribal consciousness, and then that you have the tribal consciousness that surfaces in religions uh, very strongly still. Potentially, religion is a wonderful thing, and the origin of religion, of course, is usually there was somebody who had a deep insight into the oneness of all life and attempted to teach that to others, the, the compassion, the love, to recognize the other as yourself. And yet... <laughs> Unfortunately, mostly, the, the beautiful original teaching got hijacked by the egoic mind and used for its own purposes. And now we have, as a result, to a large extent, although not completely, there are pockets in religion that are deeply spiritual. 
but in many religions, many religions are a divisive force in our world rather than something that unites us. And even within the same religion, people kill each other because it's another another church or another. These people don't quite share our beliefs. They believe that this thing happened, and we believe that thing happened 600 years ago, and they don't believe that, so they must be evil. This happens when you conceptualize other human beings in your head. First, you conceptualize your, your tribal identity, us, and you have certain characteristics. Then you have to strengthen your tribal identity by having others who do not share that. The egoic self loves its enemies. <laughs> and and the, the, by the way, the personal sense of self loves its problems. <laughs> so the egoic self defines itself more clearly by having the non-believers, for example, in the case of religions, the infidels, the, oh, they are satanic beings out there. Or some people think the whole of America is satanic. There are probably millions of people who have the weird idea in their head, America is satanic. They have never, and when, if they ever met an American, they would completely, all they would see when they hear American, there would be the screen of conceptualization, satanic, 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 and they wouldn't see you at all. They can't, they cannot differentiate between a saintly figure who is American and a, a brutal murderer who is American. He's just American. They can't, they should just be a street. It's an incredible what the mind can do to you, how it can totally obscure your perception of reality and Sometimes some Americans may do the same towards others. It could well be that you have an idea in your head, all Muslims are awful, they're just out to kill us. And then if you truly had that idea in your head, whenever you meet someone who says, I'm a Muslim, you go, oh. completely you will not see the human being anymore, but only your concept. You will relate to the other through this dense screen of of concept, in other words, total separation. And when you do that to another human being, then it's very easy to perpetrate acts of violence because you cannot sense their inherent aliveness anymore because you have dehumanized them. They've become, the word is objectified because they've become mental objects. This all happens when you are too identified with thought. It cannot step out of thought. This is, these are the enormous dangers about being too identified with thought. So you have these collective entities, which are really extremely nasty entities. So does this just get to this issue of this pain body where you need to separate that out? Because, you know, the issue is how do you expand this group? How do you get away from that? Is it turning off this inner voice and not listening to it, putting it aside... Is that the key? Uh, yes, stepping out of complete identification with thinking really remains the key so that you, your reality is no longer only a conceptual reality. And you can sense, then sense, meet another human being in that sense of clear presence without imposing immediately judgments on him or her. Suddenly there is a, a, a something flowing between you. Suddenly there is a it feels good to relate to another without without the, all those obstructions. And this is where we have to go. Otherwise, we would destroy ourselves. If there is more and more humans are able to 
awakened now, I believe that, and I, I know that, there are still pockets on the planet that are very deeply possessed, one could almost say, by the, by the tribal consciousness. And uh, those are the places that you hear most of when you listen to the news, unfortunately. I'm sorry to say we are out of time. I thank all of you so much for being here. Eckhart, thank you so much. It's been oh, a blessing. Thank you. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.